Well, good morning. Uh, Since we are calling an audible this morning, why don't we turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. So we will be looking at sola gratia, or grace alone. So again, your Bibles to Ephesians 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Well, let's begin with a little Reformation history. 502 years ago, this October 31st, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the chapel at Wittenberg. That was what many people call the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It was a Protestant in that it was a protest against the Catholic Church. And it was a Reformation because it sought to reform the Church, not to do away with it. As a matter of fact, go read the 95 Theses and you'll find Luther is still Catholic. Uh, He still very much is saying the problems is that the Pope doesn't know what's going on. Well, what were those problems? Well, they were bound up with a man named Johann Tetzel who became famous for his preaching of indulgences. Now, indulgences were a way of buying forgiveness. Later, Martin Luther would write this about Tetzel, that he claimed to have the grace and power from the Pope to offer forgiveness, even if someone had slept with the Holy Virgin Mother of God, as long as the contribution would be put in the coffer. Tetzel had a famous little jingle, his used car salesman ways, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs... As they say, that'll preach. In other words, Tetzel promised salvation for those who would pay the right amount of money, even for sins they would not have committed yet. Famous story, uh, maybe not so famous, but a story of a nobleman was so disgusted with Tetzel. He was a rather crass man, and like I said, kind of a sleazy used car salesman type, you might say. And so he went to him and said, Tetzel, can I buy an indulgence for a sin I haven't committed yet? And Tetzel said, yes. Yes, I have the, uh, the authority from the Pope to allow you to purchase an indulgence for a sin you have not yet committed. So they haggled over the price, and the nobleman bought his indulgence. And the next day, the nobleman waited with friends outside of town for Tetzel, where they severely beat him and robbed him blind. Tetzel then took him to jail, or took him to, to the judge, upon which the nobleman pulled out the indulgence signed by Tetzel himself. And the judge threw the course out of case, or through the case out of court. As for why these indulgences were being sold, Pope Leo X had lived a life of obscene luxury, and he wanted to revamp the St. Peter's Basilica, his cathedral, but also he wanted to do so to prove that Rome and the Catholic Church were still united, because the Turks were invading on the eastern borders, and that Christendom was threatened. So indulgences became the way of spiritually taxing God's people, as it were. And since no one was able to read the Bible, nobody knew that they were total nonsense. See, in those days, the priestly system was so corrupt, and Tetzel himself was nipping off of the pot. And much of this history is debated, but just to give you a flavor of how this is, because there certainly was reasons to whitewash history, you could say. But the popes were incredibly corrupt. Pope Alexander, for example, would have been around when Luther was growing up. And after practically purchasing his way into the position of Pope, he then went on to have, sources say, allegedly, as many as seven illegitimate children, which he then was leeching church funds to pay for their wealthy lives. See, when studying the Reformation, you find all sorts of reasons why there was need for protest and why there was need for Reformation. But one of the men you have to study, if you're going to study the Reformation, was a man who never actually reformed. He was a quasi-reformer, and his name was Desiderius Erasmus. 
Many have claimed he might be one of the most brilliant minds ever to live. He was a famous rhetorician. Uh, but he didn't want to actually fully reform. Erasmus agreed with Luther's deep concern about the corruption in the church, and he consistently argued for reform, but it was not a theological reform that he was arguing for. Erasmus wanted a moral reform. Luther's theological reform was splitting the church, and Erasmus refused to have anything to do with it. Well, after Leo died, the next pope was elected, and he worked with the king of England, to convince Erasmus that he needed to write against this heretic, this wild bull, Martin Luther, who was stirring up so much trouble. And so on September 4th, 1523, Erasmus responded to King Henry VIII that he would indeed write against Luther's new teaching. Well, in April of the following year, Luther wrote to Erasmus, hearing this was going to happen somehow, and he wrote in a rather patronizing tone that Erasmus should really remain a spectator in this business of the Reformation. If he wishes to enjoy a peaceful old age, because the matter is beyond his capacity, Luther was a firecracker for sure. Well, Erasmus responded with a blunt and bitter letter, and then on September 1st, 1524, he published his diatribe called the Discourse on on Free Will. And five days later, he wrote to King Henry VIII saying, the die is cast. The little book on free will has seen the light of day. A little over a year later, Luther responds with his book, which has been argued to be his greatest theological work, The Bondage of the Will. Now, this brief history lesson is important because you have to understand that the Reformation turns on five solas. So we will look today at sola gratia, or salvation by grace alone. And grace has everything to do with the will, as we will see in this text, and how the two fit together. See, Erasmus believed that grace simply helped humans come to a knowledge of God, which then enabled them, as it were, to use their free wills to become more good and choose between choices that would lead to salvation. J.I. Packer writes this, Christianity to Erasmus was essentially morality with a minimum of doctrinal statements loosely appended. His attitude was that what one believes about the mysteries of the faith does not much matter. Peace in the church was of more value than any doctrine. That was Erasmus' argument. And Luther responds in The Bondage of the Will, saying, absolutely not. He called this matter the hinge on which all turns. So whereas Rome and Erasmus saw an outward, inward transformation that you work so that you can work things into your life, oh, you're aided by grace, but you work salvation in, almost as it were. Luther and the Reformers would argue that the Bible teaches an inward, outward transformation, that God saves by grace alone, but that grace is then worked out. And it is that point which Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, seeks to make this morning that we are saved by grace alone unto good works. So, first, let's look at the first five verses of this passage so we can set the the stage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that children of wrath, that's what's known as a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew figure of speech, which basically means exactly what you would think it means, is that you are all completely deserving of the wrath of God. You were born into it. There's no one that earns the wrath of God. You were born earning the wrath, needing the wrath of God, and then you continue to stack wrath up. That's what it's getting at here. Outside of Christ, there is only sin and depravity, a life deserving only of the wrath of God. And if that was where this text ended, we'd be in deep trouble. But praise God for verse 4. But God. Man was hopeless, lost, depraved, deserving of nothing but wrath, but God acted. The four, focus of verse 1 through 3, if you look at the key words, is man, flesh, the world, the devil... You look at verses 4 through 10, and the focus is on God and what he has done to his people to unite them to Christ. See, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, the Greek of this text, it's one sentence. That's a one big, really long, complex sentence. But there's one subject, and it's God. And there are three verbs. So God, the subject, does three actions. God makes you alive. God raises us with Christ. God seats us with Christ. So the main idea is clear. All people are spiritually dead, deserving of God's wrath, but God, and here's where, made us alive. He raises us up and seats us with Christ. So if one through three set the entire universe of mankind under the wrath of God, verse four and five and six Show God's response is to save an us. Well, who is the us? Without a doubt, it refers to Paul and the Ephesian Christians that he is writing. And clearly, in the original context, that's the main point. But by extension, it is all those who are made alive, who are raised with Christ, who are seated with Christ. Now, you'll notice at the end there of verse 5, it brackets. Some Bibles put parentheses and some put dashes. By grace, you have been saved. What Paul's doing is he's showing you that's a summary of everything he's going to say in verses 1 through 7. Those, those little words right there that are bracketed off in verse 5 of your Bible is saying, you want to know what it means that by grace you are saved? It means that you are children of wrath. There was nothing you could have done but to stack up more wrath for yourself. But God made us alive and raised us and seated us with his son. It is a summary of this whole work that's taking place in these first seven verses of Ephesians 2. And there are two whys. Why did God do this? Well, first it says, because he is rich in mercy, and then because of the great love with which he loved us. See, it's critically important to see what this means. Again, God could have, seeing the world of the children of wrath, he could have damned us all. God would be perfectly just and perfectly loving. It doesn't alter him in any way if he completely destroys Adam and Eve after they fall. If the flood, he doesn't keep Noah. If he just at any time said, I can't take it anymore, these wicked people, God remains just. He remains loving. 
Because he's perfectly loving. Father, Son, Spirit. No, it's based off of mercy. By his mercy. Mercy is not giving someone something they deserve. So rather than giving us treasonous rebels what we deserved, he was merciful. Then the second reason is because of his great love. And notice again, his love is for us. Now, that basically means that God doesn't love everybody the same way. Now, I know that that can strike as really odd. If you want a, a helpful book on this, I recommend D.A. Carson or a little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, because it is. Love is contextualized. I love many of the children in this church, but not the same way I love my daughter. Love is always contextualized. God's love here, his great love, his great love that is played out in salvation by grace alone is his love for us. It's a specific love. His great love for his people. In other words, this passage is dealing with God's electing love, his saving love. And I realize this doctrine causes some people turmoil and angst. But we need to see in this context that election is always tied to God's grace. God chooses based on his grace and his mercy, not by anything anyone's done. God's choosing and saving, his electing, as it were, of his people is a result of God's grace at work in the lives of his people. So regardless of the difficulties, this doctrine of election unto salvation must not be silenced or ignored like Erasmus was trying to do. Refusing to engage with hard doctrines is a way of forming God into our image. It's it's a way of silencing him, of muting him and saying, I'm really comfortable with this kind of God. I mean, the God who never offends me, he, he never makes me cranky, he never worries me. I'm okay with that kind of a God. But this God is infinite, and we are finite. So friends, I would just submit to you that at the very basic level, we are all going to have doctrines that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable. In fact, if there is no doctrine that makes you uncomfortable, I have to start asking, what are you doing to the Bible? Because the Bible is an uncomfortable book. What ways do you mold God into your image? What ways do you sand him down to make him a little more comfy. See, friends, I guarantee you, if you take the time to think through the theological teachings or points or what have you that make you uncomfortable, that is the place where you're going to be tempted to change God, to to make him more comfortable for you. And that's exactly what Erasmus was doing. And that's exactly what Luther refused to allow to happen. And so that brings us to the main, one of the main uncomfortable doctrines in this text that Luther deals with in his book, and that is sovereignty and responsibility. How do we deal with these two truths? Well, I'm going I'm to submit, this is from an, uh, another D.A. Carson book, and he writes this. He's the truth about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and he says these two truths are, you, you cannot deny them biblically. This is the way these two, two things fit, even though they don't seem to fit. So first, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. And two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. 
and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. You notice the two statements. Our tendency oftentimes is to say either or. Now, the philosophers dealt with this, and theologians have dealt with this over the years, but either God is sovereign or I'm free. But the Bible says both. And I could give you example after example, but I just want to give you two. First one is Isaiah 10, fascinating passage, 5 through 19. The context is God says he's going to use Assyria, and by the way, Assyria was like the most grotesque nation around at the time, and he's going to wield Assyria like an axe to judge Israel. And he says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So God is using the wicked nation of Assyria to judge Israel for their sins. But then in verse 12, something incredible happens when the Lord says this. When the Lord finished, has finished with Assyria, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. In other words, God uses Assyria to judge Israel. And he says, you think that you won that battle by yourself and you're boasting about it. So now I'm going to judge you for your sin. Now, if you don't like that, I'm sorry, that's the Bible. That's what it says. The section begins with God saying, I will wield them as a tool of judgment and then I will judge them for the way that they treated my people. Don't get rid of the either or. You're going to create problems. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are side by side. Now, if that sounds unfair, I'm sorry, but you have to deal with it. God is God, and we are not. Now, I say that with jest, but not entirely, because Scripture just simply will not stand for minimizing, for subtracting from God's sovereignty. There are no rogue molecules, it has been well said. And then perhaps the most potent example of this would be Acts chapter 4. The context, Peter and John have just been threatened by the Jewish leaders to cease speaking about the name of Jesus, which, of course, they cannot do. And they're released from custody. And when they get back, they pray for boldness. And this is what they pray. Acts 4, 24 through 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Friends, do you see? God is sovereign even over the death of his own son. And yet, those people were gathered together in that place and they were culpable and they were guilty. So I could give you many other examples, but I, friends, I just submit to you Regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable this text is, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. And human beings are morally responsible creatures, but their actions never function so as to make God absolutely contingent. I, if this is challenging for you, I'd love to talk with you more afterwards. One book I recommend on this topic is J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And here's one of the ways he addresses it in that book. You see that each must be true on its own, but you don't see how they can both be true together. Two seemingly incompatible positions, they must be held together, and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt. 
But there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. And he goes on. What the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position we must take in our own thinking. C.H. Spurgeon once was asked if he could reconcile these two truths. And he said, I wouldn't try. I never try to reconcile old friends. Old friends, the person said. Yes, friends. See, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not endless state of cold war with each other. They're friends, and they work together. So in sum, we must not try and resolve the tension of the text. The text says what it says. All of humanity was under the just wrath of God, and God loved us, and he raised us up. Now, if you're wondering, well, am I part of that us? Then I would love to talk with you more. Because God's call is, if you hear this message of this passage, then would you repent? And would you believe? That if you come and sit here this morning and hear this incredible grace of God, and you say, I I haven't believed in him, then he says, this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, can be yours, if you repent and believe. So we'll see that very thing, grace alone, in our third point. Let's look at the the context here. Look at verse 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For... By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is one of those passages, depending upon where you grew up, you may have heard it taught like this. That God's salvation is like a gift. And he gives this gift to everybody, and some people choose whether or not to open it. I imagine that's familiar for many of you. But I'd say, as a member, in this passage, there's only one actor. It's God. And God does three things. He makes a life, he raises, and he seats us with Christ in the heavenlies. So I don't think that works. And I'm going to argue, under four points, if you're a note-taker, why? It cannot mean that. And the first one is just the basic grammar of the passage. Grammatically, the gift is salvation by grace through faith. It's the whole package. God's gift is salvation by grace through faith. It's not something that has to be opened. The context, one commentator says, demands it must be understood as this whole thing. God brought us from death to life solely by his grace. That is the gift, which leads to a second point. The gift of salvation, as we saw, is bound up with God being rich in mercy. To say, as I used to say, that it is unjust for God not to offer this gift to every single person. You have just changed categories. Mercy is giving someone, not giving someone what they deserve. Justice is giving them what they deserve. God's gift of salvation is a gift of mercy. The amazing thing about God... That he is rich in mercy. 
God makes people alive according to this mercy. And that means it's no longer in the realm of justice. It's no longer in the realm of oh. Anything connected to God's work of making people alive has nothing to do with justice. Justice would have been to damn us children of wrath. It all has to do with mercy. Because the moment you say it's owed, you've changed categories. It's no longer mercy. It's no longer grace. If grace or mercy are required, we've destroyed them and turned them into justice. The third problem is this. If we assume, contrary to the grammar, that this is a gift that everyone has equally been offered, that means you would have a reason to boast. Because why did you open that gift but your friend didn't? Why did you open the gift that everybody got but your friend didn't? And verse 9 specifically says, salvation is from God alone so that no one may boast. It's right in the text. So it just doesn't work. And then finally, though much, much more could be said, understanding this passage as speaking about the gift of salvation being given to every single person without distinction is just impossible to square with Paul's worldview. Now, that's a big claim, so let me suss this out a bit. We would all agree that Paul was Jewish. Did Paul choose to be Jewish? No, of course not. Well, back up a step. The Jews were God's chosen people, were they not? Did the Jews choose to be God's chosen people? No. What does Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 say? God says through Moses, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Not because you were more in number. Not because God. But because God set his love on you. That sounds awfully familiar. It sounds like Paul is using Deuteronomy as the background of his theology here. Paul's entire grid was that the Old Testament is about the reality of God choosing a people through whom the Messiah would come. Paul didn't have an understand he didn't have categories for understanding this like radical everybody gets a gift type of thing. That just wouldn't he didn't have the way of thinking that way. Go back to Acts 9 and read about Paul's salvation experience. Jesus shows up, sets him on his butt, blinds him and says, "You're mine." And then he says, and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Friends, Paul just did not have those categories. So again, I realize that this is a hard passage. And this is a hard truth. And I would say, here's the thing. We don't require this to be something you must believe in to be a member here. I think that's a wise decision. Because we are all pilgrims on the way. But my challenge to us is this. Is that no matter what we believe about these things... It's our duty to submit ourselves to the word of God. The very word understand has a symbolic significance. The word rules over us. It overstands us. If we show up to the text and overstand it and say what it can say, friends, again, we're shaving God. We do not get to be tiny popes who claim to have the absolute authority of what a doctrine can be. Now, if we long to be biblically faithful Christians, we submit to the text again and again and again. We will spend our whole lives coming back and allowing ourselves to be molded and to be shaped because we're pilgrims on the way. As finite people, we must expect that to be the reality. Over the years, I've changed my position on so many things. And I will tell you this. Even now, after having gone through this so many times in so many different ways, a new book comes out that theologians say, this is, this is changing everything. It still gives me a pit in my stomach. 
Because I'm like, I don't want to change my mind. I feel good about being right. But friends, our job is to come back again and again and say the text stands up here and I come underneath it. And if that means that I repent of things I held before, that means I repent of things I held before. We continually submit ourselves to the text. Otherwise, we can have this tendency. And as Reformedish people, especially, we can have this tendency to bind our identity up with our theological system. Now, for some of you, you, you're hearing me preach this text, and you're like, I just don't like anything about that. And others, you're like, that, that's my jam right there. That's how I get down. Both of us need to be careful because both of us could so easily say, because I have this or because I don't have this, that defines me. Friends, that is not what defines you in this text. What defines you in this text is that you are a child of wrath. And if you are a Christian today, it's because God has made you alive, has raised you, and has seated you, uniting you to Christ. So let's make sure that though we continue to dig, we continue to press, we continue to come back to the word, that our identity is found in Christ alone. So a final point in this section that I really want to drive out here is in verse 7. Because that's a purpose clause. Verse 7 is showing you something about the purpose. Or it's answering the question, why did God do it this way? Okay, let's say God saves in this radically God-centered way. But why? And here's why. Read verse 7. So that, for this reason, for this purpose, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus God saves this way for putting on display throughout all the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Put it this way, God has bent and shaped all of human history and all of redemptive history for the singular purpose of putting on display his matchless grace. Which begs the question, friend, if you're a Christian here this morning, does the hope of beholding the grace of God shape your day? Does your calendar bend around the desire to behold afresh the grace of God? Do your relationships, do your conversations, are they formed by a desire to see afresh the grace of God in Christ? We could apply this in so many other ways. Luther said that the last part of a man to be saved was his wallet. Does your wallet bend around the desire to see and behold afresh the grace of God? Because Paul says that's God's purpose. His aim was to demonstrate his glorious grace. Elsewhere it says, so that all the heavenlies would be looking and beholding it. Or as Peter says, the angels long to see it. Because God put it on display. And that was his purpose And we as Christians are to be these little visuals that in our lives and our conversations and our actions, we are pointing people to behold the grace of God again and again. As we ourselves are confronted and reminded with the fact that we are those children of wrath, but God made us alive. And that should flow into our conversations and and our relationships. And that brings us to the last point, that we are his workmanship. One more time, verses 8 through 10, to catch the flow of the context. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his 
workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch the play on words there? We are his workmanship, created, recreated, for good works. You see, this verse almost unpacks the entire Reformation argument. This little play on words is the balance lost by Rome and regained in the Reformation. Because Rome says that we are saved by grace through faith and works. But Paul says we've been made a new creation by God's workmanship, by God alone, through grace alone, for the purpose of good works. To demonstrate that we are those who truly are God's workmanship, we will work. God's work was to save us, and after saving us entirely, he sends us off to work. So friends, grace alone says that we are Christians entirely by what God has done in Christ. We are his workmanship, and because of that reality, we work. We serve. We love. We care. We lay our lives down for those around us. So notice then, if we're saved by this radical, glorious grace of God, then it's going to suss itself out, as we have said. So Christian, again, if you have been made alive with Christ, that means you're going to serve those around us. And I praise God for this church. I am so blessed by the countless ways I see the members of this church loving and serving and caring for each other. What a joy it is to serve at a church where you get to see people longing for opportunities to serve each other, to encourage each other, to hold each other's hands as we walk towards Jesus and stumble towards Jesus together. What a joy that is. And one of the ways I would just encourage us to keep going on is we're going to be printing a new membership directory soon. It'll be coming out in the next couple weeks. Hopefully you're so excited because yours is worn out from praying through it so many times. But the reason we print that membership directory is because these are the people you have covenanted to do this walk of faith with. So pray through it. Pray through it again and again. That's why hopefully in our triads we're praying together. In our community groups we're praying together and for each other. And the membership directory then gives you a way of praying through every person on, in the church directory. And for those of you who are not yet members, it's an encouragement to become a member of the church. Don't hang out on the outside. Press in, because the members seek to care for each other. Now, of course, we care for all sorts of people, but as we pray through that directory, that's what we're doing. We're doing the work of ministry for which we've been equipped, as he's going to go on to say in Ephesians chapter 4. Mark Dever says this really helpful thing. He says, there's two most important books in my life, my Bible and my membership directory. And I'm serious, and wherever you see him, he's got his membership directory in his Bible, because every morning he reads his Bible and he prays for his members of his church. And that really should be a big part of the way that our heart beats too. Is that we bend our lives around re-beholding the glory of God and praying that our fellow members are re-beholding the glory of God as well. So, to get back to our text, to close our time. We've seen in this passage the who, the what, and the why of grace alone. Did you see them? Who? Those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. What? That God has made them alive, raised them up, and seated them with Christ, uniting them to him. And why? Well, he did it because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love for his people, and to put on display his grace for the ages to come. But the text doesn't technically give us the how. 
Now, we could find it for sure, but I just want you to skip three verses further on and look at verse 13, because that's where we read the how God made those who were dead in their trespasses alive. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is how God accomplishes this incredible work. And that's why we often sing those wonderful lyrics of that hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath its flood. They lose all their guilt and stains. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supplied, redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be until I die. Friends, I hope that you see the glorious message that salvation is by grace alone. In Christ alone, who bled alone for us to be made alive, to be raised, and to be sat with him in the heavenlies. Would you pray with me?